Well, I wonder if you would turn with me to uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. I'm going to read part of the chapter. And here we're going to read about the, uh, the way in which the northern and southern kingdoms were separated um, into two kingdoms which will shape the future for uh, one kings and two kings so you remember that um, uh, Solomon has been in sin and uh, a prophecy has been given uh, that uh, the ten of the tribes will be ripped from Solomon's hand and this is how it comes about Uh, and the significant figures are Rehoboam which is Solomon's son and Jeroboam who at the moment is in exile in Egypt but comes back so look out for those two so verse 1 Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king and as soon as Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard of it for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon then Jeroboam returned from Egypt and they sent and called him and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam your father made our yoke heavy now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you and he said to them go away for three days then come again to me So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him, And he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Now, whereas my father laid in you a heavy yoke, I will add to to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. So, Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king said. Come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, uh, the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. 
So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the words of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your words again, give us great wisdom, we pray. Uh, for these are difficult things to comprehend. And, uh, and therefore I pray that uh, you'd help us to draw out lessons that will help us uh, in these days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come into uh, chapter 12, uh, we're moving into a kind of post-Solomon period. Um, and in particular, the historical events uh, that shapes the ongoing history of Israel is the division of the kingdom into these two parts. Ten tribes to the north and two tribes that remain in the south. The ten tribes in the north separate off from Judah and Benjamin. Um, and it's a division that becomes a, a feature of the history of Israel from now on uh, up until 2 Samuel chapter 17, the point at which uh, Assyria then conquers the northern kingdom and Samaria is transported off to the other parts of the, of the, the empire, the Assyrian empire. And essentially the ten tribes are lost um, or they lose their identity. Now that's, those are the historical events that are happening. But of course, as we uh, approach a passage like this, we need to think theologically about history. Um, it's good to get in training uh, through the study of Scripture to think theologically about history and about events that are happening around us. And what we're told here is that the, the reason for this division that happens um, is because of Solomon's sin. A dead king, a king who's died, but because he sinned, this event is going to happen. And we're told this through the uh, prophetic ministry of Ahijah. Uh, You may remember Ahijah appears on the road, uh, meets uh, Jeroboam, and the Lord promises to Jeroboam, you know, through that visual kind of parable of tearing up his garment into uh, 12 pieces, and he hands 10 of them over to to Jeroboam and he says the Lord is taking ten tribes and he's going to give them to you um, and uh, and it comes with uh, uh, various other words that he says that 
The, the word from Ahijah comes as a promise, but it also comes with conditions. And you may remember that. Uh, Jeroboam, the condition is that Jeroboam is to walk in the ways of the Lord. Uh, God is going to do this, and he wants Jeroboam to walk in the ways of uh, the Lord as David did. And uh, if he does so, then the Lord of heaven is going to build his house, his family line, his his dynasty, if you like, uh, and make it prosper and flourish. And uh, in other words, God is seeking to establish this uh, covenant relationship with Jeroboam, as he did with uh, David and then with Solomon. And now he wants to do it with Jeroboam. And, uh, and so, in a, in a real sense, Jeroboam has this opportunity to be great in God's kingdom uh, under the hand of God. But as we'll see in the next few chapters, he succumbs to insecurity. And that, in turn, turns to idolatry. And he starts following all these false gods. So, insecurity almost always leads to idolatry of some kind. Because you begin to focus on the things you're insecure about. And in the chapters that follow, in the the remainder of uh, 1 Kings, Jeroboam is constantly contrasted with David. David, who walked in the ways of the Lord. No, that doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner. He sinned. But, you know, generally speaking, he followed faithfully his God in heaven. And yet Jeroboam does the exact opposite. And uh, he leads, not only does he do great damage to himself and, and his successors, but he leads Israel, essentially the northern kingdom, into oblivion um, because of, their, uh, of this unfaithfulness. Well, this chapter tells us, and this first half of the chapter tells us how the kingdom was split in two. And uh, and Jeroboam takes these ten tribes to the north, and Rehoboam, uh, the son of Solomon, keeps the tribe of David, uh, the uh, the tribe of Judah, of which David is part, and uh, as as God promised earlier. And it's in a sense, it's a story of uh, pig-headed arrogance um, on the part of Rehoboam, and uh, and yet, as we'll see, ultimately, it's not about that. It's, uh, it's actually about something more important than that. And we'll see what that is as we go on. Uh, let me just, as, as is my habit, uh, draw out three points this evening. Three things to uh, draw your attention to. And the first is, stupidity doesn't get in the way of God's sovereignty. Human stupidity doesn't get in the way of God's sovereignty. So Rehoboam comes to the throne of his father David. He's crowned in Shechem. And you may remember that Shechem was the the first place where Abraham stopped after he had received those initial covenant promises. And when he arrived at Shechem under the trees of Mamre, uh, he received more promises from God. And so Shechem is a a significant place in the the history of the people of Israel. And uh, and so that's where, they, you know, where the, the king is crowned now. Um, nominally, at least under God. Meanwhile, Jeroboam 
has been in Egypt. And we, we saw how he ended up in Egypt in chapter 11, you may remember. Um, and I won't go over that again, but you, you might want to read that later. Uh, and the last thing we heard about Rehoboam in chapter 11 was that he was asking Pharaoh for permission to go back to his homeland. He had already risen through the ranks. He was a significant figure in Egypt. But now he wants to go back to his own uh, country and um, he, wanted, he needed permission from Pharaoh to be able to do that. And so he comes back to, to Israel from Egypt in verse 2. And it's clear that immediately Jeroboam is recognized as a significant individual amongst the Israelites. Because what happens then is he, he comes almost as a representative leading the, the rest of the Israelites into the court of Rehoboam to ask for leniency, for a lighter yoke on the people. And it's interesting to think, how did that happen? Because you remember under Solomon, uh, everybody was content in his wisdom. In those early days of his, his reign, everyone was content under his wisdom. He seemed such a wise and good king, and he seemed to do all things right and well for the people. And uh, everybody was happy and content under their vine and fig tree, and so on. But now, at the end of his life, Everybody's bearing this heavy yoke. Now, has that got something to do with the fact that Solomon turned away from, from God, was unfaithful to God, and turned to idolatry, and then began to sort of all his sins started pouring out of him, and he started weighing heavily upon the people, perhaps? Well, the situation, though, is, is this that the people are under a heavy yoke. And Jeroboam comes and speaks on behalf of the people to Jeroboam, the new king. To try and lift the yoke somewhat. To make it life easier for his people. And uh, you know there's great wisdom in, in asking for such a thing. That if you make the lives of the people better. Uh, then you win them. They love you. You know, People love you if you serve them well as king. If you're in a, power of, in a position of authority. You know, how much would people love our government if, they, if everybody felt that they were doing great things for other people? Nobody ever does. But, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter who's in government. Um, there's always somebody who's not happy. But, you know, if everybody could be somehow blessed by government, everybody would love the government, wouldn't they? And this is, this is the, the thinking behind Jeroboam's approach. Um, and it's, so there's a great deal of wisdom in what he's doing here. And so Rehoboam says, I'll think about this, give me three days, and I'll think about it. What does he do in those three days? Well, he, he seeks counsel, he seeks advice. And first of all, Rehoboam turns to the old men of his court, the men who served Solomon, who are still in his court now. So, you know, years of experience. And they, they ask these men, what, what should we do? And they say... You know, the wise thing here is for you to be a servant to the people and do well for them and make their load lighter, make life easier for them as best you can, and they will serve you, they say. And what does Rehoboam do with that advice? Well, he just rejects it. <laughs> he says, no, I'm not going to listen to that. And uh, why was that? Was, was he insecure? Was he proud? Did he want to assert his dominance over the people? Say, I'm in charge and I want everybody to know about it. 
So there's always a danger with people in positions of power and authority, and it can happen in the church as well, that uh, they're more interested in asserting their authority than they are in loving the people. And, uh, and the temptation is, especially if you're, if you're young and you're inexperienced, is to reject wisdom, the wisdom of the old, older, wiser people, and just plow your own fur and do your own thing. You want to show, the thing about being young is you want to show that very quickly that you know what you're doing, don't you? you when you get a job you know, and you go, you go to a new office or something or a factory or whatever and you start this new job, you want to show your bosses that you can do a really good job, I hope. And uh, you want to impress people. You want to rise up the ladder, as it were. You want to do well. And uh, that, behind that can be a little bit of pride because you're blind a little bit to your weaknesses and your failings and your inexperience and all kinds of things. So... So what, what does Rehoboam do? Well, he turns away from his old people and he turns to his pals. You know, all the people he's grown up in school with. Um, I don't know if he had school, but you know. <laughs> all his friends that were kind of growing up with him at the time. And they're there in the court with him. And you can just imagine him having a great time with his pals all the time. All his power. Maybe wealth and riches and so on. And he's sharing that with all his pals and everything. And say, so what will you do? And they, they say, you need to crack the whip a bit more. You need to not only crack the whip, you need to crack the, you know, bring out the scorpions. <laughs> Give them a really hard time. You need to show who's boss around here. You need to really impress them upon them. Your authority. And so put a heavier burden on the people. Really put them under the thumb. And you'll keep control. And so they assert this strength and dominance in leadership. That was an appalling thing, isn't it? We all know there's something wrong with people who assert dominance and strength in leadership without love and then the upshot is of course in verse 15 at the end of this first section it says here so the king did not listen to the people he didn't care he listened to his pals instead well what can we learn about this what can we learn from this you know we could have a lesson about the wisdom of going to older people and asking for their advice, and that's, a lot of that's true. We could warn of the dangers of peer pressure and all of these kind of modern ideas of, uh, you know, be careful about peer pressure. They're always going with your friends all the time. You know, be wise about things. And we could have lessons about that. So that's all good and, and no doubt necessary. But it's actually not the point here. Why is the author of One Kings telling us all this? Well, it's in verse 15, the rest of verse 15. He says, It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. You see, God had spoken about what was going to happen in chapter 11 uh, to Jeroboam through Ahijah. And all this is happening because... This has to happen. This tearing away of the ten tribes has to happen. 
And so the point is that this is not, the lessons that we're to draw from this are not about the headstrong, bad, headstrong and bad decisions of the king, though that's certainly present. The point is that in the midst of the stupidity of rule, God is sovereign and he's working out his plans as he has promised. You see, God has already told us the direction that he's aiming for, the direction he's going and the goal that he's aiming for. That he might fulfill his word through Ahijah. So it's not a secret what God is doing here because he's already told us. It hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. But the writer wants to, uses this phrase, a turn of affairs or a set of circumstances which he describes as being brought about by the Lord. Now that raises all kinds of questions for us. And you know, it raises also the question of how subtle is God's sovereign uh, rule and control of events and affairs. Because what we see here is the absolute sovereignty of God in human affairs that are not derailed by human stupidity, And yet, the sovereignty is exercised in such a way that it does not violate Rehoboam's decision to act the way that he did. There's no sense in which Rehoboam is is doing something he didn't want to do. As though he's forced to be a stupid, pig-headed so-and-so. He actually just was that, and he wanted to be. He's completely free to act as he wanted to. Now, this is our mystery, isn't it? The sovereignty of God and human freedom. But God, in the end, gets what he wants and what he promises. Uh, maybe this will help you. I don't know. Uh, I find this helpful. But if you want a picture of the relationship between God and Rehoboam here, um, you shouldn't be thinking about two more or less kind of equal people arm wrestling each other about who's got dominance in their life. So Rehoboam wants to go this way and God wants to go this way and there's a kind of arm wrestling match going on. And yes, God's a bit bigger, but you know, he's basically in, there's a wrestling match going on. That's the wrong picture to have. Rather, I think it's more like the relationship between Shakespeare and a character in one of his plays. Just think about that for a second. So I'm going to talk about Macbeth, because that's the one Shakespeare thing I learned at school. Macbeth, the Scottish play. And so Shakespeare tells the story of how Macbeth, you know, an ancient Scottish king, um, well, actually before he was king, he killed the king, Duncan, so that he would ascend to the throne and become king in his place. Now, in the play... Did Macbeth have the sense that he was doing something that he was out of control in? That he was doing something that he didn't actually want to do? No, he wanted to do it. I mean, he may have had regrets later. But he, he wanted to kill the king so that he could come to the throne. And he was completely free. Within the framework of the play, he was completely free to decide to do it. Now, we'll think about it the other way around. Was... Shakespeare forced to have Macbeth kill in his play. Was Shakespeare made to do something that he didn't want to do? That Macbeth was going to kill Duncan. 
No, he's completely free. So God, you know, Shakespeare is completely free to write this, write the play as he sees fit. But within the play itself, Macbeth is perfectly free to do, carry out the murders that he wants to carry out, without any sense of interference from Shakespeare. It's an interesting, perhaps way of looking at it. I, I find that helpful. Um, so Shakespeare's, just because Shakespeare writes about murder doesn't make him guilty of murder. That would be a strange thing, isn't it? <laughs> He's not, you know, Shakespeare's not guilty of murder. So God is not guilty of the sins of the people that, uh, that people carry out in the world that he's made. Rather, the people are guilty. But then also, Macbeth cannot claim that he was made to murder because he chose to. In the same way, we cannot claim that God made us sin because we choose to sin. Oh, that helps. See, there's a subtlety in God's working. And it's a lot to do with the fact that God is creature, creator and we're creatures. Two different orders of being. But, something we, but this is something that we need to remember in all the events of our lives. That no matter how foolish we can be, no matter how sinful we can be, God's purposes cannot be derailed by our foolishness and our sin. That God will fulfill all his promises. And that ought to be a great encouragement to us. But at the same time, it calls us constantly to be faithful to God and to learn from our foolish ways. Well, that's the first thing. Stupidity. I've forgotten the title. What is it? The first thing. Stupidity does not get in the way of God's sovereignty. Here's the second thing. Stupidity comes with tragedy, but it comes under God's unchanging purposes. And that has implications. As we move on to the second section, verses 16 to 20, um, we find here that the consequence of Rehoboam's pig-headed arrogance is that the northern tribes decide that they have no part in the inheritance of David. And they're going to separate off. They rebel against Rehoboam. And what happens next emphasizes the arrogance of Rehoboam in listening to his young pals instead of... um, And and it, it teaches us that what happens next shows us that this is a pattern of behavior in Rehoboam. It wasn't just a one-off bad decision but actually, there's a pattern of bad decision-making here. Um, arrogance seems to be a pattern of his life. And so, his first response is to crack the whip of dominance over what he sees as a delinquent set of tribes in the north. Then he sends Adoram. Adoram, who is the one who is in charge of all the forced labor. Now, that's probably the labor of the non-Jewish, non-Israelite people still resident within the boundaries of the tribes of, Ju- of, of Judah, of, of Israel, uh, which Joshua didn't quite get rid of. And so the forced labor is, is that small group of people. But now Adoram is sent by Rehoboam to apply the same methodology of dominance and forced labor to the northern tribes. He's going to try and put them under the thumb. Well, the people rebel. They won't have it. 
And Adoram comes to a painful and rather sudden death as he is killed under a hail of stones from the Israelites. And he dies. And as we'll see in a moment, the, the third response from Rehoboam is to start to raise an army. In verse 21, he talks about the 180,000 warriors that are going to move north to try and subdue these ten tribes. And we'll come to that in a minute. Now, the point about this is that while we acknowledge the sovereignty of God in all things, that doesn't mean we're allowed to have a blasé, apathetic attitude towards our pride and our sin. The right response to what we're seeing here is to find ourselves immensely sad at human foolishness and to see what a disaster it is. And it's this human foolishness that leaves everyone diminished and impoverished both materially and spiritually in Israel. And at this point you you might be thinking to yourself, What about the great covenant promise that God has made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we've referred to several times already? What's going to happen to that promise? You remember in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And It looks like a complete disaster that's happening and unfolding before our eyes. God seems to promise that David's dynasty will last forever, according to his promise. But, 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 it's all going pear-shaped. And we should be, look at that, and we get immensely sad that it's happening. And wonder what's going on. But this is where, this is how the manifold wisdom of God And the providential care often looks to us from our vantage point in history. To us, it doesn't look like a straight line, does it? It looks like a mess. It looks like a very crooked line. And it's incomprehensible to us at the time. And it may involve our sin, and it may involve other people's sin... uh, And and there are always consequences of sin that, that ripple out into your life... And other people's lives. And these consequences may actually live with us for the rest of our lives. And we maybe spend our time, if we're not thinking about it correctly, thinking, how on earth can this happen? How can God allow this to happen? Well, we shouldn't be surprised that it looks crooked to us. And it looks strange to us. Uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, which may well have been written by Solomon, uh, though it doesn't quite identify him. Uh, says this, uh, Ecclesiastes 7.13, Consider the work of God. Who can, uh, who can make straight what he has made crooked? And God makes many things crooked to our eyes. And who can straighten these things out? And the answer is nobody, no human being can straighten these things, things out. And yet the simple truth is, that in the midst of all the stupidity of sin, and pride and failure, God, nothing can thwart God's plans. And actually there is a promise that will come to fulfillment through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's son. Do you remember how Luke, uh, in chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. 
uh, and he says this, uh, preparing for the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah says this, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. You see, it's through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that all these things will begin to make sense to us. The, things will become, you know, the crooked things will become straight. It's not saying that he's going to make everything look straight to you. Almost certainly that's not the case. But one day, once we get to heaven, if we die, or if Christ comes again, he will come and explain it to us. How straight his purposes were. Well, that brings us to the last consequence of all this. Which is we need to learn to trust God and live with the consequences of our past stupidity. And uh, this is verses 21 to 24. So in these last few verses, we find that Rehoboam wants to use force to reverse the rebellion that's taken place. So he raises this 180,000 man army. And uh, he's going to wage war and bring the northern kingdom to heel. But amazingly, at this point, God intervenes. Uh, how does he do that? Well, he sends a, a man of God at this point. He sends Shemaiah. And um, Shemaiah is one of these, another one of these uh, divinely appointed men of God who just appears on the scene briefly. We never see him again. He appears on the scene briefly. He has a word to say. And then he disappears forever from our eyes. We never hear about him again. And he comes with this command from God in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up and fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me, says God. And then something actually stunning happens. When you think about the character of Rehoboam, something absolutely stunning happens. He listens to the word of God. For once, he listens to wisdom. And he turns his men around, sends them home, and goes back home. You know, that incident has all the hallmarks of divine grace intervening, even in Rehoboam's life, to the point where he listens and and for once makes this wise decision not to pursue the northern kingdom. Because God is in the business of fulfilling his promises. And Rehoboam, therefore, pulls back. So, on the one hand, we see uh, this wisdom. And Rehoboam sort of ceases and desists from his, his pride. But on the other, if he is to follow, think about this. If Rehoboam is to follow God, this will be a decision that will solidify the results of his past foolishness. You think about that? This will solidify the division of the two kingdoms that have been brought about by his foolishness. In other words, the consequences of his past sin and pride and arrogance will live with him for the rest of his days and for subsequent generations. (laughs) 
And he will do this. But here's the, here's the comfort in this. He will agree to listen to God and obey God. And he will know that he has found true wisdom at this point. He's listened to God and done what he said. Friends, that's a, this is a, often the pattern of our lives, isn't it? All of us, no doubt, have made decisions in our lives that we regret. We've made foolish and stupid decisions about things. We've been arrogant and proud. And maybe some of those decisions have turned out to be disastrous for us or for our family or for our friends. Uh, And in many ways, the consequences of those past decisions might be irreversible. You may have to live with the consequences of those terrible decisions for the rest of your days. And, you know, it's not just big things in your life. I'm very conscious, you know, as I've got older, I've become increasingly conscious that even small things like a loose word or an angry word can have effects on people around you that are irreversible. They kind of change the nature of the relationship sometimes. Um, And so we need to be very careful about those things. But we can all perhaps look back and think, look at all these terrible things I've said or, or rash things that I've offended somebody with that although I've apologized for them, I live with the consequences of that terrible thing I said. We have to live with these consequences. But here's the, here's the hope in this. That God is the God of all grace. And that even in those situations, he can come to you in his word and call you to be faithful to him and call you to believe in him and to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean that all your problems will be fixed right now and that all these things will go away. No, not at all. But it does mean that there's hope for you. That if you will hear God, that if you will listen to him from this day forth, you will experience the grace of God in your life. And more and more, he will come and change you. There's hope here for people who listen to God, who start listening to God today. You can still, you can repent of sins of the past. But you may not be able to reverse the consequences. But you can find yourself once again in fellowship with God. And he will walk with you as you walk with him. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. If you have done terrible things in the past, don't despair. God can intervene into your life with his marvelous grace. And can prepare you for the rest of your life. And help you. God is with you in his grace. He will help you. And in the end, he will make all these crooked things straight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the marvelous way in which your providence works. We find ourselves um, baffled by it sometimes, and it's a mystery to us, uh, because we have such a blinkered view of our lives uh, under, your, uh, under your, your gaze and smile. But Lord, we do want to trust you in the midst of it all. Father, we come to you with uh, our many sins, and many sins perhaps of uh, years ago have caused irreversible damage to our, our life's path and so on. And we may feel that we have um, lost everything or we've lost your way or something like that. And uh, Father, encourage us with these words 
that God can come in grace again and can restore us and build us up and strengthen us. And though things, many things in our lives may be irreversible, yet you will take us and help us. Lord, we bless you for your grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray we would all know this in Jesus' name. Amen.